All right, y'all, welcome to the second episode from the Mad Rhythms Podcast Network. This is Brill Barrett, and I'm the host of the Either And Podcast, where we just get into everything and anything and talk about how and or why we do what we do. We say what we say. We believe what we believe. So I spent the whole first episode hopefully introducing myself to you and you getting to know me and what I'm about and why I do what I do and what makes me tick, what makes me me. So I think with this next episode, we're going to jump right into Black History Month. What else? It's February. It's the shortest day of the year. There's people that complain about that always. But I just still love that we take the opportunity to learn more about the history And of course, the different things that African-Americans have contributed to this society, this country. I know when I was coming up, when we talked about Black History Month, we always talked about, of course, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, and maybe Malcolm X, depending on how the teacher felt. But I love that now we understand that black history is American history. And that gives us a wider breadth of the contributions that black people have made to this country, to this society. Like, think about this. Black people helped build America, which meant not even help. Black people built America, which means that black people were here before America was here. So just a thought. All right. So we'll get into it. I hope y'all have had a good time. I hope y'all have been out here celebrating and learning about the contributions of African-Americans to this society, to this country. You know, Black History Month is celebrated every year. It was officially recognized in 1976 by President Gerald Ford. And of course, it's a time to honor the contributions of African-Americans throughout the history of the United States. But why it's important, I think, is specifically because this country did a very good job of hiding, or in some cases, totally whitewashing the contributions of African-Americans in this country. And I just think we owe it to ourselves, to our ancestors, and to the history to really get into the contributions they made. Um, I know for me, what made me really fall in love with tap dance was falling in love with the history of the dance. And I know in my classes, one of the things I always talk about is, yeah, we do sort of thematic exercises at the end of my classes. And of course, in in February, we always do black tap dances for Black History Month. And then one year I realized, why am I doing this when the whole history of tap is filled and pioneered by black people? And then that led me down the path of really getting into the black women who pioneered in the tap dance field. But Nobody even knows they existed. So when I think about Black History Month, I think about pioneers and why they did what they did. And I also draw inspiration and motivation from those pioneers. I'll very quickly talk about Peg Leg Bates because Peg Leg Bates is one of those stories that I use not only to motivate myself, but also to motivate my students. Peg Leg Bates Clayton was his official first name. Clayton Pegleg Bates was a tap dancer, one of the legends in the vaudeville circuit. You would see him do amazing things. He had one leg and a wooden peg for his other leg. But what really turned me into a Pegleg Bates fan when I learned about his history and I learned about, first of all, how he ended up getting his leg amputated. 
And that's a story a lot of people don't know and don't talk about. But basically, on the plantation where his family was from, he was his leg got caught in a cotton gin machine. And that's already history. If you don't know what a cotton gin machine is, it's the machine that was created by a black man, Eli Whitney to be exact, but to make sure, like, you know, picking cotton was what slaves had to do. And it was brutal. And so a black man invented something to hopefully help make it easier on slaves. So the cotton gin machine separates the seed from the the, the cotton or whatever, however that goes. And that machine, but still had to be, that machine still had to be handled and people still had to feed the cotton in and people still had to. So it still took labor, but it helped by making it less labor. You know, if, if, if like the hands of, of slaves for what they went through picking cotton, their hands were brutalized. They were brutalized. Everything was brutal. So the cotton gin machine was created by this black man who said there has got to be a better way. And what I love about history is that when you start learning about the history of different things that were created, you understand that it's a lot of times people are going, there's got to be a better way. And they say necessity is the mother of all invention. Well, there it is. Long story short, Pig Leg Bates gets his leg. Now, I don't know how, but gets his leg caught in a cotton gin machine. They get it out of there. It's all mangled. They amputate his leg on the kitchen table. So for me, that story right there is is just, that's enough. But then I go, so then after that, he decided, like he danced and he danced around, but he wasn't a professional dancer before this. So this man became a professional dancer after he lost his leg. And he got a wooden peg and they built it. And he proceeded to learn how to tap dance and make rhythms with this wooden peg. And the story goes, he had a strip of leather that ran down one half of the wooden peg. And that strip of leather, depending on how he landed on that peg, gave him different tonality. So as a tap dancer, we rely on different parts of our feet for that tonality. I give you a toe, or if I go to the tip of the toe, it's going to be a harder sound. These things, he learned how to get that same type of difference in tonality off of a wooden peg. So he proceeded to become a tap dancing legend because of the work he did during vaudeville. And as a matter of fact, I was once told that one-legged tap dancers was a thing. Like it got so popular that every group would have a one-legged tap dancer in it because that was a commodity or that was the the quirk. I don't know what you want to call it, even though, I mean, literally it's someone's handicap, but that's what sold to the general market. And that's what they... So one-legged tap dancers were in demand at one point in this country. Who would have ever thought that was a thing? So anyway, so back to Peg Leg Bates. If you've ever watched footage after this podcast is over, I literally want you all to go on YouTube and put in Peg Leg Bates and just watch the amazing stuff that this man did on one leg and a wooden peg. It'll blow your mind. But the fact that he did it, And he kept doing it and he became successful at it and celebrated and even legendary at it is the motivation. And that inspires me. Like I got two perfectly working legs. Something might hurt, but what if I didn't even have one of these legs? So that's always a thing that I use to um, inspire 
and motivate myself and also my students. When my students tell me, Mr. Barrett, my leg hurts. I don't know if I can. I'm like, let me show you this. <laughs> I show them footage of peg leg Bates dancing on one leg and a wooden peg. And I'm like, now, if he could do it, you ain't got no excuses. And a lot of them go, yeah, I guess I can try because I mean, what you going to say? Another one of those historic inspirations that I use is a gentleman by the name of Crip Herd, not technically known as a tap dancer, but known as a jazz vernacular dancer, which is, you know, swing, Lindy Hop, tap dance as well. All these things come out of the same arena and are definite results of African dance and African rhythms and African diasporic approaches to the dance. So anyway, Crip Herd. There's, there's only one piece of footage I've ever seen online of Crip Heard, but he only has literally half a body. This man comes out, he's got his right arm and his right leg, and he's got his upper torso, but he doesn't have a left arm and he doesn't have a left leg. So he comes out on a crutch, and they introduce him, ladies and gentlemen, Crip Heard, and this man comes out there hobbling on a crutch, and I'm thinking, how is this man going to dance? And he proceeds to get to the center of the stage, throws his crutch back over to the side and then the music comes on and he proceeds to get down and after a while you're watching him and it just seems like his left side is is doing some kind of pose it doesn't even seem like it's missing he's doing spins and jumping around and turns and and i don't know about you but having everything intact and still figuring out your center of gravity when you spin is one thing, but I feel like having half your body missing and still figuring out your center of gravity and controlling spins and turns, that's crazy. That's unheard of. But yet, this man made his living as a dancer with only half of his body. So those are the kind of things I look at, like if they can do it, I know I can. And that's just physical limitations, which I'm sure affected mentally and psychologically. And they overcame all that to become famous, legendary dancers in the world that I love, which is tap dance. But then I think about the other aspects that could clearly affect, especially during Black History Month, of course, is racism. And that is probably one of the most ugliest, psychologically damaging things that can happen to a person when you're reduced to not a human being. Yeah, in the Constitution, black people. And that was just to be able to collect taxes and to say, you know, that you represent whatever you represent and you have more stuff. But think about that. Human beings were reduced. Us, black people, our ancestors were reduced to three-fourths of a human being. That's crazy. We're not even a whole person. Cattle was closer to being a full entity than we were. So you got to understand, like, to come from there and to see the strides and the beautiful things that our ancestors have done and I'll be glad when we get to the point where history is rewritten to include all everything like the 1619 project was something that has become like this rallying cry for, I guess, people who identify with the right that to tell the true history of America and include all these different things. They don't want to see it. And like there's people that are against it and they went against it. And I'm like, but that's American history. So I'll be glad when we get to the point where. We can deal with history and we can deal with the fact that the good, the bad and the ugly is all a part of our history. Yes, we had presidents and these presidents did great things, but these presidents, the first 16 of them also owned slaves. 
So let's not sugarcoat it. Let's not kid ourselves. We can talk about what happened after the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation and Reconstruction. But let's also talk about Reconstruction was a period when after slavery, black people were achieving great things. And then a lot of those white people that didn't want to see it happen in the first place literally shut it down. I was just learning about this judge, and I believe it's in North Carolina, named uh, PBS Pinchback, I believe is his name, was seated as a, a senator in North Carolina after, re- or you know, during Reconstruction, and they refused to seat him. So there was a lot of things that have happened in our history where you can say, well, these are the good things. These are the things that America as a whole has accomplished. But understand that it was on the backs of black people and that we shouldn't shy away from that as a truth. Will that make some people uncomfortable? Sure, it will. But it should also just make you understand how much work we've got to go. I think in this country, we've always just wanted to see the country live up to what the country says it is on paper. So when you read the Constitution, there should be all these great ideals that we live up to. The amendments, you start getting into those. There's all these ideals that now freedom of press, freedom of religion, you know, all, all these things that we should now live up to. And I think as a whole, my ancestors and even and even, you know, up to this day, We're fighting to make sure that this country lives up to what it promised it would be from the beginning. Right. So and and, and that's just education. And as long as the story is being told by one, there's an old African proverb and I know I'm about to screw it up real bad. But it goes something about that when the when the story is told by the hunter, it will always look a certain way until the lion can tell the story. And I know I just paraphrased it a great deal and somebody will probably correct me, but it is, it it is true. The sentiment is this, as long as one person tells the story, you'll never understand what the full story is because you've never heard from the person on the other side of that story. And that's all we're doing right now. So it's funny. Everything that happens in the tap dance world is literally a micro piece of everything that's happening in the regular world. So when we talk about history, things being changed and told the wrong way or whitewashed or simply lied about, that also happens in the tap world. So I've been I've been dealing with that as a tap dancer ever since I started really getting into the history of the art form. Like, um, let's start with the origin of tap. It's taught everywhere. It's talked about everywhere. It's printed everywhere. It's in all kind of books, especially books about tap. But one of the things they always say, and this is what I was taught, tap dance comes from a combination of, and this is, if you get it in a good book, it'll say a combination of Irish, English clogging, and African rhythms and influences or something like that. I read one where it didn't even talk about the African aspect at all. And it wasn't until I started meeting legends in the tap dance world and hearing them tell the stories of how they learned and who they learned and how they just picked up from and tracing tap back through the actual stories of those that lived it, that I realized that a lot of the books are straight up lying. It's not even a, you know, we've got these cute words now, uh, misinformation, misdirection, 
uh, when politicians say something that isn't true, we say it's it's you know they're misinformed or it's a misinformation or. I remember a couple of years back, somebody coined the phrase alternative facts, which is not a thing, never has been. But that even got popular and people started repeating that. But all of those are different words for lie. (laughs) People are lying about the contributions that certain people have made because they don't want to taint the image of those certain people. There's no other thing that we can attribute that to other than we got to change it and we got to fix it. So the history of TAP. I was in Riverdance and I tell this story all the time and Riverdance was the Irish experience told from the Irish peoples. And so there's no reason for me to not believe what they poured their money and resources into creating to tell their story. It's nobody else telling their story. And in the story of Riverdance, they talk about the lives they were living in Ireland. They talk about the persecution that they endured, why they left Ireland They talk about when they got to America, how they were treated. You know, Irish immigrants alone weren't treated as white people for a long time. They were other and they were treated not nicely. But those poor Irish immigrants moved into whatever they could afford, which was usually poor communities where black people were already living. It's very interesting when you look at the story that they told and they say, when we got to America, we met these black tap dancers. Well, we met these black people and these black people did this thing called tap dance. That's from the Irish point of view. But when we tell the story in America and, you know, there's got to be a different reason the story has changed. They like to say the Irish created or a part of the creation or the origin story of tap. And if you ask anybody in Ireland or any historians, like I had a guy send me all these clips of newspaper articles from the 1800s about uh, Master Juba, who's the first known tap dancer. And so right there, the Irish, the Irish folks say they black people in America were tap dancing when we got there. Master Juba is being credited with being the first known tap dancer. And why do I say known? It's because Charles Dickens, a white man, wrote about him. If Charles Dickens hadn't written about Master Juba, we probably wouldn't know who he was or we wouldn't have known who he was then at any time in this country. When have white people created something that black people got the credit for creating? It happens the other way around. Black people have invented all kinds of things and they have their trademarks and inventions just taken from them at the office and given to somebody else. So when in this country and please somebody let me know, have white people ever created something that black people somehow stole or took the credit for? It doesn't happen because black people were, were not in control of any of those recording resources, documentation resources. We've never had the control of that. So that's never happened. So once again, the first known black man, Master Juba, a tap dancer, a black man named Master Juba. Think about it. It only has to make sense when you think about it logistically factually so you got the irish story they got here they saw tap dancers one of the first people they could have seen master juba let's just put it in line chronologically right master juba doing his thing irish step dancing is a beautiful art form it is a percussive dance form but just because it's that doesn't mean it has to be the precursor to tap it's totally different and because i toured in a show that was all about irish step dancing i learned about irish dance 
Similarities, yes, but there's also similarities in flamenco, and we're not trying to say the Spanish created tap. There's also similarities in uh, Mexican folkloric dancing. Zapateado is what they call it. We we don't say that. That has anything to do with the creation of tap. There's similarities in Indian Kathak, but we don't say that the Indian community had anything to do. So why is it so important to give credit where credit is not due in terms of the creation? Well, it comes to, you know, and again, historically speaking, you've got black tap dancers, you've got Irish dancers. Yeah, there's similarities. Yeah, like there's a step we do in tap, shuffle, hop, cross, shuffle, hop, jump, or across to the front or to the back. And we call that a back Irish or a front Irish. So it ain't like we weren't giving credit to where we got influences from. We literally in the name and Trey, my partner, Martin Trey Dumas III, also just known as Trey, he literally talked about that in the show that we did, Hoofing It, the untold story of the founders of TAP. So we've never had problems giving credit where credit is due. We created an art form. In that art form, we borrowed from other art forms, and we even said it and gave credit. But it's just funny. The credit is not always given when it's the other way around. So I look at that in terms of, so that's the tap dance world. And how does that connect to what's happening outside of tap dance? The origin story of America, the origin story of how we got to where we are right now has been mistold, corrupted, and just simply lied about. And in the event that somebody tries to correct that, you get the whole, you know, right now, the big talking topic is CRT, critical race theory. And, they, and they've even banned it in some states from being taught in uh, K through 12 schools which from what I know, and here's the first thing, I had to look it up. Like most people, I had no idea what critical race theory was. So it is a framework, a legal framework for examining, and I, I wish I was looking at the definition now so I could say it like exactly, but it's a legal framework for examining the, the history through the lens of race. And it is a legal framework taught in law school and used in law schools to help lawyers learn the different ways that they can argue and be lawyers. So critical race theory is not taught in K through 12 schools. So banning it is a moot point unless one, you don't know what it is or two, the real purpose is because now you've created this uproar anti CRT folks and you're also packing anything that has to do with race into critical race theory. Because simply talking about black people's plight in America is not critical race theory. Simply talking about what happened after slavery is not critical race theory. Simply talking about the Jim Crow era in this country is not critical race theory. But if you package it up, and since you know most people don't know what CRT is, and then you package a bunch of stuff into the definition, then you can say, well, we banned in CRT, which is why you can't teach about Martin Luther King anymore. Like, it's the craziest logic. It's the craziest path that you can take, but it literally is what it is. And it's what we're seeing in today's society. It's taking the origin story of this country and not like I heard somebody say, the reason they don't want the history taught accurately is because a lot of people who, who created or, or, or uh, implemented some of these atrocities in this country are don't want their grandchildren to learn about what they did. Like, it's a, it's a crazy thing. 
And they've got laws in schools now where uh, I know Black History Month, we're talking about this, but in some schools, when you talk about it, the parents are sent home a letter saying they can opt out, which is crazy. We were just sitting up talking about this in between the episodes we should have been recording, and Vanessa told me so. Uh, But we were just sitting up talking about this, and that's the first thing Vanessa said. "I I can't opt out of white history. So how is it even a thing that you can opt out of history? That tells you the state that we're in as not even just a country, but as a society. How can you opt out of history when everything that goes forward comes from knowledge of history? But in some places they can opt out. I know somewhere they just passed a law and I say somewhere because I don't want to say the wrong place. I I feel like I said Texas earlier and it might be Florida. But if anything that you're teaching causes any of your students to feel uncomfortable, you have to stop teaching it. And I'm like, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard, because being uncomfortable is how you learn about the things that you don't ever want to see happen again and how you prevent them. One of the things I think about is I connect to the Jewish community and how they treat the information that is the Holocaust and how they make sure that everybody in that community learns about that atrocity. Because if you know about it and you see the signs coming, you will not let it happen again. But when we deal with the history of black people in this country, and even some black people will say, oh, that's a long time ago. Stop looking back. You got to look forward. Stop thinking about the past. Nah, you got to know the past. You got to know what got you to where you are so that you can then focus on making sure it does not happen again going forward. And to me, that's just common sense. That's literally a law of survival. I think about all those things every Black History Month, and I'm glad we've now broadened and opened our approach to learning about a lot of the things that happened. And I think it will make us as a society better for it. I was uh, watching uh, Charlemagne the God has a show called The God's Honest Truth, and he was talking about learning about in Germany. And as you see, I'm trying to recite my sources because right there, I'm giving credit where credit is due. I don't want you to hear me talk about this and say, oh, that's what Brill made up or that's what Brill's talking about. If, if it's something I got from someone else, I'm going to tell you. And I don't know why that's so hard. And I don't know why that's such a crazy thing for everybody to do. If you got something from us or my culture or my ancestors, claim it. Say you got it. You know, we won't talk about the schools uh, in Africa the first university being in Timbuktu and that the Greek scholars used to come over to learn from the Africans. So we won't talk about the fact that every time somebody talks about Africa, they, they use words like primitive or, or, you know, uh, I don't know, crazy words that mean without societal norms. When the literal layout of society comes from African tradition, like a lot of the instrumentation used comes from Somebody was telling me about the African history of the banjo. And when you think about a banjo, you think of some down south country, whatever you think of. But again, that's that's an, a traditional African instrument it has a whole different name, slightly different design. Of course, it got changed over time. Different resources, different wood, different design aesthetics. But let's give credit where credit is due. We still shouldn't have to be secretly finding out about the African origins of anything in this country. If we're truly supposed to be a melting pot, then knowing that only adds to the beauty of all these different cultures coming together to create this society, which, you know, I don't necessarily believe that myself. 
because that's not how this country's ever been ran. If it's a melting pot, it's an accidental melting pot because on purpose, I believe that our ancestors, like, I believe that we as a culture have never been forgiven for not staying slaves and that everything that came out after from the slave codes to Jim Crow, to reconstruction, to the, the, you know, civil rights in the sixties, all those different movements are generations after generation of black people having to fight just to be considered human, just for the same rights that everybody else is assumed to have in a country that assumes to give those rights. Why else do we have to keep fighting all the way up until now? Why else does the term Black Lives Matter have to have any meaning unless you feel like you're in a country where black lives don't matter? Whenever somebody says Black Lives Matter and the answer to that is all lives matter, I really hate it. And not because all lives don't matter, But because when you use that in response to Black Lives Matter, then you're setting it up as the alternative. So you feel like it's either Black Lives Have to Matter or All Lives Have to Matter. And once again, what's the name of this podcast? The Either Am Podcast. Why? Because I think Black Lives Have to Matter and All Lives Have to Matter at the same time. But you got to understand where the problem is when you see unarmed black men and women being killed, shot down in the streets. It's what seem as if black lives don't matter. And so then when everybody, you know, I loved seeing everybody out in those streets protesting and and marching for black lives. That was a beautiful thing. And that's when I felt like America and even parts of the world were finally starting to get it. Finally starting to see what black people have been fighting for and talking about for generations. And then what happens? They double down on the backlash to it and create the society we're in now where they're passing, where they're banning books in schools. Like, and most of those books that get banned are anything that have to do with black history, anything that have to do with the LGBTQ community, anything they booked. a, a What is the there's a graphic novel called Mouse about the Holocaust. They banned that in a certain school district. So they're looking for excuses because I I believe my personal theory is that the internet has made information too accessible to everybody. So now in order to control and keep the narrative as you planned it to be, or whatever the story you need to be, then you start changing rules and changing laws as it pertains. You know, in this country, whenever people figure out, a way around something, then it's called moving the goalposts, right? Then they change the way. The time you saw gun laws get the strongest in this country is when the Black Panthers start walking around with guns. Before that, anybody walked around with guns and it wasn't a problem. It was the it was the Second Amendment. It was, you know, the, the Second Amendment activists and rights, all of that. Soon as black people started walking around because we realized, oh, that should apply to us too, right? Because we're citizens, then what happened? They changed the gun laws. If you understand this country and the history of this country, you understand, like a lot of people say, this country is not what it's supposed to be. It's exactly what it's supposed to be. It's exactly how it was set up. But now we have to keep fighting to change it to the ideas that were expressed in its origin story. 
but we still are far from every man being created equal. Or maybe not created, but treated equal. We're far from that. I was just watching a video on YouTube of a, a fight in a mall, and I forgot where it was, but young black boy, young white boy got into a fight, teenagers, in a mall. Police were called. Police ran in. Now, the white boy was on top of the black boy, <laughs> so the aggressive one was the white boy. But they pulled him off, sat him on a couch while they proceeded to wrestle the black boy, flip him over, cuff him. And the white boy stood up like, I guess they're about to do the same thing to me. And nobody was paying him any attention. And it was one of the most clear cut instances of bias and training, bias and policing, or as I like to say it, racism. Because those police walked into a hot situation and people who are connected to the policing industry will say, well, they, they didn't know what was going on. True. They just should have done the same thing to both boys. So either they should have pulled them apart and sat them both down, pulled them apart or wrestled them both to the ground and cuffed them and then got the down. But for them to immediately in a situation where the only difference that they could see coming into the situation was one was black and one was white and the black boy was brutally taken down, cuffed and the white boy was just sat on a, a, a couch and told her don't move it's clearly in us an extreme inaccuracy in how black people are dealt with in this country and black people have been screaming it and yelling it forever since our our time in this country since our ancestors times of slavery just remember when slavery ended especially the folks who owned slaves they didn't want it to end and when we talk about the North, a lot of the industries in the North benefited from slavery. Most of the insurance companies that insured those slave ships, that insured those specific slaves, they were based in the North. So everybody, this country benefited greatly from slavery. So this country has always benefited greatly from black people being here. And I think of no month, other month than right now in Black History Month, is when we should hit home that fact that black people built this country and black people have been more than vital to the success of this country. And the saddest part is all we really want is the acknowledgement. It's somebody to say, you're right. We did this, we did that, but none of it would have been possible without what you did, what your ancestors did, what some sacrificed and gave their lives to do. So this Black History Month, do your part by reading. First, read about the history of certain folks. If you're a tap dancer, read about the black tap dancers that created this art form. Read about the pioneers who had to perform but couldn't come through the front door. Like you can read about, there's a book about the Rat Pack where Sammy Davis Jr. was on stage with Dean Martin and uh, Frank Sinatra and I forgot the other. There's, a, there's another guy, I can never remember his name from the Rat Pack. But luckily, Dean Martin or Frank Sinatra, they, they stood up and said, he's got to stay at the hotel with us. Because before then, they were telling Sammy Davis Jr., they can come in the front. You got to come in the back. They can stay in the casino hotel. You got to stay at, you know, a boarding something or other 50 miles away. The Nicholas brothers entertained masses at the Cotton Club, but weren't allowed to come through the front doors, weren't allowed to ever sit in the audience. 
And when they did it, because they were kids, some people were calling for their heads because they went and sat in the audience one night after a show. But I remember Fayard Nicholas talking about me and my brother were determined to sit with the people who had been applauding for us all night. So there's stories like that and there's stories that you can really dig out, especially I was just reading on Facebook. There was a teacher in one of the tap dance lovers groups or tap dance educators groups that was saying she was running out of names to teach her students for Black History Month about black tap dancers. And I was just thinking and a lot of people responded and made suggestions and I was happy that she was reaching out for help. But the other side of me, the and side of me, was also like, but if you study tap dance, you should know these people. You should know these African-Americans that pioneered this art form. You don't know the men because of racism. You don't know the black women because of racism plus sexism. So it's almost like the black women didn't exist at all. You don't know about the Whitman sisters who were not only an act, a group that tap danced and sang and, and did the whole thing, but they also booked the other acts on the show. They were producers. So there was a group of black women producing shows in the vaudeville era. And a lot of the black men that we know, the hoofers of old, came up through those shows being hired by those black women. But everybody don't know about the Whitman sisters. But you should. Dr. Jenny Lagon, first African-American female to receive a major motion, multi-major motion picture contract. Nobody even knows she existed. She was the only adult partner of Bojangles, but I don't want you to know her because of the man she danced with. Like that's also another problem we got in this society, identifying women by the men they're connected to. So I want you to learn about Dr. Jenny Lagon because she was greatness. She was wearing pants at a time when women were told you must, you know, you must wear a skirt. Like it was looked down upon for women to wear pants. And she wasn't even making a statement. She just said, and this is from her mouth. She thought she had skinny legs, so she didn't want to wear a skirt. But imagine that that move alone, which was just her being conscious of her body and how she wanted it represented. That move alone was considered revolutionary. So I'll be glad when we get to a point where all of this stuff is not uh, necessary because we know it and because it's been woven into our aesthetic as Americans, as human beings. These are all the people like I'm actually I'll be glad when we get to the point where there's no more first. Like in this day and age, we still have first the first black person to do this, the first woman to do that, like We've we still got a lot of room to grow and a lot of ways to go into getting to the point where there are no more first. But I'll be glad when we do it, because that will mean that the society has finally gotten to a point where people are just getting opportunities because they deserve them or they've earned them. But not just because someone assumed they needed it or wanted it or vice versa. Someone assumed they didn't want it or need it. Um. So yeah, celebrate Black History Month, but also Black History is 365. I know that's that's in somebody's slogan. <laughs> it might even be McDonald's that took that. Black History Month is 365 days a year. But I know that it's important and that it should be important to you because it's the fabric of America. It's the fabric of tap dance. It's the fabric of society. It's the fabric of everything we live in. 
and that we fight against nowadays, right? So learn your history, learn it, study it, know it for more than just February. And just think about the different things that the country you live in will do to honor other people and their plights, but doesn't necessarily do them to honor you and your plight or your ancestors. Chicago dyes the river green for St. Patrick's Day. What does Chicago do for Black History Month? I know we just got Lakeshore Drive renamed DuSable, but I think it's now DuSable Lakeshore Drive. Like they just really put the names together. But even that was a fight. This city, here's some history for you. You can take this home with you. The city of Chicago was founded by a black man. How come everybody in this city doesn't know that? Jean Baptiste Point DuSable was a French Haitian. Well, he was a Haitian man. They spoke French because, you know, that's another thing about who colonized who, when. But he was a Haitian man who was a free man, who was a trader, who established Chicago as a trading post. We should all know that in this city because it is literally the history of this city. That's not black history. That's American history. And there's countless other stories that go along that same path. Well, once you understand what they are, they're not black history. They're American history. So we'll keep celebrating black history until it is fully intertwined and involved in American history. And then we'll then be able to just celebrate history. But remember that, y'all. Black History 365, we'll, we'll have to stop. You know, we'll get to the point where we're no longer fighting about how many black folks got nominated for Oscars. And I know one of the things I always paid attention to was black people's names were always mispronounced at the Oscars. But then when all these other folks start, like when a lot of foreign directors start winning awards, they could say their names perfectly. And these were some of the craziest names I ever heard. But it's where you put the effort. It's where you put the effort. And I think our effort needs to be on celebrating and acknowledging those who have been in the trenches doing the work. Those who are now in the trenches doing the work, i.e. making a difference. Whether it's dancing rhythms, i.e. Or whether it's, you know, out in these streets. But there are people who make a difference and this is the history that you are a part of and we should be able to share that. So that's what Black History Month means to me. It means us sharing. It means us making sure that our ancestors get the credit where the credit was due. I think all schools should celebrate it, but I think all schools should celebrate Black History Month with an awareness because some schools have been getting in trouble because the way they want to celebrate is have fried chicken on the menu. Guys, we're not going to celebrate that way. And if you just talk to black people, they'll tell you, don't celebrate that way. So all of this stuff that's happening, all the things we're going through, it's uh, it's all so that we come out better on the other side of it. Or at least I think it should be. So with that, I'm going to sign off, y'all. This has been episode two of the Either And podcast. I'm your host, Brill Barrett. And I'd like to say on the count of three, respect the dance. One, two, three. Three, respect the dance.